Want to learn how to be a master of business without going back to school? Listen to the Planet Money MBA. No suits, no PowerPoints, just the secrets of business school delivered straight to your ears. Every Wednesday till Labor Day on Planet Money from NPR. My name is Brando Skyhorse. I'm an associate professor of English and creative writing at Indiana University Bloomington. And I've just released a new novel called My Name is Iris from Avid Reader Press. Brando Skyhorse's new novel, My Name is Iris, is a work of speculative fiction that imagines what would happen if mandatory electronic wristbands were required to prove citizenship, and particularly how that experience might affect immigrants who are eager to fit in yet are constantly othered. It's an idea that might not be so distant from today's reality in this country. I recently spoke with Brando Skyhorse about his own ethnic identity and how he used his experience to craft the experience of Iris, who strives to be accepted by the country she loves. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so can you give our listeners a brief description of the book? So this is about a woman named Iris Prince. She is a woman who is starting over. She's separating from her husband. She has a nine-year-old child. She's moving into a brand new house, brand new neighborhood, starting a brand new life. And she looks out her beautiful bay window one bright sunny morning and sees a wall where there was no wall before. And we learn as we read this book that this is a mystery. This is a thriller. This is about a woman who is in trouble because She doesn't know who she is, and she doesn't realize where she is all of a sudden. This is a woman in transition, I guess, the best way to describe it, a woman in trouble. You know, I'm not exactly sure what we're revealing for spoilers, because, you know, I did not initially read the jacket copy when I picked up this book. Beautiful. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, I like to pick up a book with, you know, no preconceived notions. So the wall surprised me. And then I decided to read like the marketing materials that arrived with the book and discovered the wristbands. So let's start maybe with, you know, Iris, formerly Inez. She tries to be the model minority and she succeeds and fails in different ways. So talk to me about Iris's slash Inez. (laughs) Talk to me about her desire to be an American. Yeah, yeah. So these are topics that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I've been publishing books for about 13 years, and this is, I guess, my fourth book. And uh, a lot of the themes in this book reflect themes about race, identity, ethnicity that I've been thinking about for a really long time. Inez is a young woman who, you know, was uh, born in America. Uh, Her parents emigrated to America here. And uh, she essentially has this very specific idea of what it means to be American. She grew up in the 1980s. And if you grew up in the 1980s, I'm sure you're familiar with like, you know, what it was like. There's a very specific idea of what it means to be an American. So Inez worked incredibly hard, losing that accent. You know, when teachers in her elementary and junior high school had trouble pronouncing her name, one of them said, why don't I just call you Iris? And she just ran with it because, oh, great. Like, this is a teacher who's actually taking time out to help me become more American. To her, being an American meant success. And to her, success meant safety. So here is a young woman who essentially has been aspiring for safety, aspiring to just blend in nice and easy. We learn early on in the book that there was an incident with one of her best friends who meets, as as you read in the book, a very unfortunate end. And because of that specific experience, 
Inez realizes the more American I am, the more blended in I am, the more safe I am, and the more safe I can become, the more I can get everything that I want that this country has to offer. And see, I even mispronounced her name, Inez. <laughs> oh, no, well, no, well, but that's that's perfect, right? That that's exactly when you're that kind, when you're in that situation, right? And you have a name like Inez, right, or even a name like you know Brando Skyhorse, and there's all sorts of takes on it. You know, the first few times it can be like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. But like after the fiftieth time or the hundredth time, you find that it brings undue attention onto you, and especially if you're a young child. You know, that all that, just imagine this young girl, like having her name mispronounced over and over and over again, her cheeks getting flushed, all the blood rushing to her face and her just saying, look, I just want to blend in. I just want to study with everybody. Like, I don't want to make a big deal out of everything. And there are so many children, there are so many students of color who feel those experiences growing up. They just want to blend in nice and easy because they know if they don't, they're called out for special attention that brings attention to them you know, sometimes unwanted from their friends, from their community, from their teachers. And so you just illustrated it perfectly. Like Inez really just wants to be one of the crowd. You know, the opening pages of the book, the very first page of the book, Dolores, she reminds Iris often, you were born here. Yes. You know, and yes. I yeah, I saw but didn't note the page later when, you know, to apply for um, a band which we'll talk about mm. in a minute, to apply for a band, mm. Iris had to prove that her parents were born here. And, and I thought, yes. well, that doesn't seem right. She was born here. And then yeah, later... That doesn't seem right. Yeah, and then later... <laughs> What's up with that? Yeah. You know, later on page 97, she did acknowledge, and I quote, I wasn't chasing anything I didn't already have when the rules flipped mm. on me. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's talk mm -hmm. about, you know, this very plausible idea of rights and citizenship being taken away. Yeah, I, uh, you know, when Simon and Schuster asked me to create these like YouTube videos, there's this one little like YouTube video where they like do as kind of a joke, like, oh, can you pitch your book? Can you like describe <laughs> your book in five seconds? And my pitch was, please don't let Elon Musk read this book. <laughs> because there's like something that's just kind of like on the edge of this, right? And for your listeners who, you know, are intrigued by this. So um, Iris is living in what you would call like kind of a dystopic thriller timeline, but maybe not too much. There is an, uh, a voting amendment that has just passed in the state in which Iris has lived in. And as you see in the, in, in the book, it's not really named because it doesn't really matter. It could be any state, any part of this country, any part in our near distant future where uh, you can get this uh, nice little like techno wristband that keeps track of all of the state functions and it's sold to people as a way to like help the environment. So you can track your garbage usage and you can have your driver's license on it. You get all these fun things. And the only thing that you need in order to get one of these fancy little wristbands is your parents' proof of parental citizenship. And what Iris realizes much later on, much to her dismay, she already knows that her parents were not born here. Her parents were undocumented. And that this is actually a way, a very clever way through Silicon Valley and through, you know, a right wing think tank organization to essentially, quote unquote, weed out people who don't belong here. People who are, you know, in this country and who are taking our resources and putting their kids in our school systems and not paying their fair share, not basically not not citizens. Right. And so Iris slowly 
has all of these aspects of citizenship, things that she's proud of, things that she's invested in, taken away from her one step at a time. And if you think that this is entirely implausible, this idea was inspired by a constitutional amendment that uh, Republican Senator from Louisiana, David Vitter, a few years ago proposed that citizenship would be eligible for people only if their parents were citizens. And if that name David Vitter does ring a bell with you, uh, he was the one that was caught up in that, uh, I think, D.C. prostitution scandal a few years later. So I believe that's why the amendment never mm -hmm. really got traction. But uh, again, this isn't something that, you know, I'm not that clever. Like, I, it's not something like, oh, what, what, what's the most like insane thing that I could do and like put a character through, right? This is something that's been discussed and talked about. So my feeling was, what would it be like to put a character who is a person of color, but considers himself American first, Mexican second, Mexican-American second, what would it be like to put them through their paces? This book is the result of that. Yeah, I was struck by, you know, some of the some of the quotes that were out there of people saying, yes, it's time for Americans to decide who Americans are, if I remember mm -hmm. right. So, mm -hmm. you know, these bans, they were voted in, as you mentioned. And, and mm -hmm. in the book, Iris mm -hmm. said that in hindsight, you know, people spoke of the vote, quote unquote, with the same distinction as some generations say, like Kennedy or 9-11. Yeah. So what do you yeah. want to say about voting in this country through this book? I think that uh, we hear this now every election cycle, right? This is the most important election of your generation. This is the election that decides who's on the Supreme Court. This is the election that will decide for the next 25, 30 years. And part of the reason that this amendment passes, I think it's also mentioned in the book, is that Iris is basically not able to distinguish between either position, even though the stakes are enormous. And so I think it's less of a commentary about voting per se, but more about this sort of like fatigue that I feel that we have right now as citizens being constantly bombarded with this message of like, you've got to vote. It's so important. You know, the future of the country rests upon how this vote shakes out and it's built up to this thing. And people feel like, oh, well, you know, like nothing changes. I hear this over and over and over again. And that's how you have maybe perhaps people who don't have our country's best interests at heart. Maybe that's how they get elected. Maybe because people hear this message so often, there's so much fatigue, they tune out. They decide, you know what? This can't be the eighth election in a row, which is the most important election in like the 21st century. Maybe there's other better things that I could be doing with my time. And I think that as we learn in the book, this process of transformation, it's a gradual one. It's like just kind of like watching a pot of like, you know, boiling water. Sorry, I, I don't meant like the book is as boring as like watching water. <laughs> boil. I don't mean that. I hope it's exciting. I hope it's thrilling. But like the temperature on Iris, right, and her life, it's basically just it's it's a very gradual thing until all of a sudden, you know, it's everywhere. What's that like famous Hemingway quote? Uh, she went bankrupt two ways, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> so th this is this is a sense like, you know, Iris loses her identity two ways, gradually and then very, very suddenly. You know, I want to talk about skin color because mm. Iris was often comparing her skin color to her family's, to her husband's mm -hmm. family, to her mm. co-workers and her college friend. And mm -hmm. there was one point when she and Alex went out with Esteban and, and Iris yeah. said he was the wrong kind of misfit, the wrong kind of outsider, or perhaps mm. as a darker skinned Mexican, the wrong kind of person of color. Talk to yeah. me about this. Yeah. So I feel that 
colorism is something that, you know, we're only just now, I feel like in the Latin community. And again, I know that word has changed. Like when I was growing up, it was the Chicano community. Then it became the Latinx community. And now it's Latin community that colorism in many ways is like the sort of caste system that many persons of color essentially like just kind of like put people into, put people into categories. You know, I remember growing up um, watching those telenovelas with my grandmother. And if you ever watch those telenovelas, like uh, for those of your listeners who might not know what those are, those are basically like Spanish language soap operas run by like Spanish language networks. You know, you can basically find them on any like, you know, cable network now. And uh, all of the people on those telenovelas are light-skinned, incredibly light-skinned, unless, of course, they're a part of a cartel or if they're like drug dealers or they're narco traffickers or something, in which case they're dark-skinned. I remember like speaking with this person uh, who I think like, you know, knew somebody who like cast people for those telenovelas in Mexico. And they had a very rigid caste system. Like basically when you were 14 or 15, if you're interested in like, you know, working in these telenovelas, if you were light-skinned, you went to one kind of classes. You went to dancing classes, language classes, you know, how to like carry yourself, you know, almost like deportment classes. If you were dark-skinned, then you went to like, oh, well, this is how you hold a gun. And this is like, you know, how you would interact with like, you know, uh, people who are like, you know, criminals or whatever. So this is something that in the Latin community, I feel like they're even, even amongst a marginalized community, there's still ways in which people of color look to essentially like great people or rank people. And I feel that like Iris has that, that essentially that, that, that baked in um, prejudice that sense that because, you know, I'm not light skin, I'm not like what you would see on the telenovela. My, my color is just a little bit different, you know, that I'm less than, that somehow, you know, I just don't fit the like model archetype of the people that I see in the advertisements, in the movies and on television. And it's it's a very, very troubling thing. I, I taught a class uh, about a year and a half ago on ethnic racial passing. And, you know, reading the research and we reread books and read articles on colorism and it's it's rampant and it's and it's it's a thing. There's really no easy answer to, you know, there's no like, oh, well, like, let's just like treat everybody the way we would like to be treated. That's in the perfect world. But, yeah, oftentimes, you know, there's just so many of these like baked in prejudices that, you know, you're just. You 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 soak them in and you just kind of take them with you wherever you go. You know, I was struck by what you wrote about comments about somebody being pretty. Iris says, I learned pretty was a good conversational opener for sidewalk genealogists, complimentary while Mm. being nonspecific enough to set up an increasingly pointed follow-up question. Pretty led to, where is she from? Which led to, where are you from? Which led to, no, before here. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, pretty meant different and different meant trouble. So talk to me about, you know, this idea. And I mean, it seems like, why are we so interested in, in what the other is? It's like we know what we, we don't know what we are, but we know what we are not. Talk to me about this. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, as you can imagine, with a name like Brando Skyhorse, you know how like every work of fiction has a little bit of like the author saying, yeah, this maybe had happened to me. And maybe I've been thinking about this for a while. My birth name is Uyoa, U-L-L-O-A. And when I was three years old, my biological father left me and my mother, who was also Mexican-American, because it was the 1970s. And I guess I, apparently this was a thing that people did. 
um, she decided to reinvent us as American Indians. And, and I did not know that I wasn't a Mexican American until I was about 12 or 13. And that's how good my mother's deception was. She fooled people at my school. She fooled people in the community and the whole thing. And if you look back on it, it's like, well, we lived in Echo Park, which was a predominantly Mexican-American community. We went to a school that had Mexican-Americans, Vietnamese-Americans. Like, what's more plausible, that we were Mexican-American or that we were American Indians, right? But it's amazing, that idea of that, like, you know, my mom could just kind of, like, get away with that and do something like that. So as I got older, as you can imagine, people would start asking me questions and start, you know, like, well, no, where are you from, really? And, you know, like, whatever answers I gave was never good enough. It was an endless checklist. Because, you know, I'm sure people say, well, what's the big deal? You have a beautiful name. People are curious. Like, they want to ask you about it. Sure. You know, like, two, three questions. Fine. 15, 20 minute conversations. <laughs> I want to check into my hotel or do whatever, right? You know, so I think that to get back to your question of the other, it's fear. It's always fear, right? And so I think this idea that like, oh, you know, here's this person, I don't know who they are and maybe I'm a little bit curious. And then somehow or another that curiosity curdles into something that's like not necessarily curiosity for curiosity's sake, but like antagonism. Who are you, right? As opposed to who are you? Who are you in this community? What are you doing here? You just moved in next door. What are your intentions? How long do you intend to stay? And you know, these, these types of things, right? I think all of us have these kind of built-in biases where we like, you know, we question who is this person that is quote unquote, not like us. And curiosity is fine. But there's a point where that curiosity like can curdle into antagonism and that antagonism then becomes fear. And that's where things to me start to get really dangerous. Was there one particular thing that you witnessed in society that made you want to write this book? I mean, we only have a 30 minute show, so I don't know. I mean, like it's, I'm writing about like, you know, a voluntary wristband system, voluntary and, and a Mexican-American woman who has a wall rising outside of her house. Like how much time you got? Yeah. But what pulled the trigger? What what said, yes, I'm doing this? Yeah, I could, I could tell you that uh, it was around summer 2016 and I just moved into this old farmhouse that was in Vermont. And uh, I was thinking a lot about the word wall. Because if I want to take you back to 2016, even though it seems like we're still in the same timeline, we're still talking about the same people, we're still having the same conversations. But all of a sudden, that word wall had become something different. Like when I thought about wall before 2016, it was kind of like a dead noun. And then all of a sudden, it became animated. It was like the inflexible punch of an advertising slogan. All of a sudden, the word wall was like being chanted. It was like the spike at the end of like this infectious like end zone dance, right? And so one morning I was looking again, much like Iris, I was looking outside my window and I was staring at this long ambling stone wall, like something like, like, like a Robert Frost poem almost, right? Like it was Vermont, right? And I heard this very distinct voice say, it's growing. Can you see that the wall is growing? And I realized that as a person of color, and a Mexican-American who admittedly had an American Indian last name, right? That word wall was doing damage to me. It was like that drip, drip, drip that all of a sudden had just become this like blood. And I was thinking, I was like, I can't be the only person that's feeling this way. I can't be the only person that's like all of a sudden hearing wall, the wall, the wall, the wall, and wondering like, you know, 
where am I? Like, what what timeline are we in? And, and why am I feeling this way? You know, I was born in America. I've lived here all of my life. So I wanted to explore that feeling. And six and a half years later, here we are. I do want to ask about craft for just a moment because yeah, sure. um, I'm curious about perspective. When I when I first started reading, I, I you know, wondered how you would tackle writing from a female perspective. Mm, mm. And then I read these lines early in the novel. It's a quote. And the fear. I don't need to say what kind. A woman will understand what I mean. And so that made me, you know, even more curious about how you were going to, you know, accomplish this. So talk mm. to me about writing from Iris's perspective. I mean, I agree that every girl deserves a leopard skin coat, but I'm wondering if you ran into any unexpected challenges. So I feel a lot of my perspectives in my writing are written from a woman's perspective. I was raised primarily by my mother and my grandmother. I had five stepfathers, four of whom were, uh, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals. And I feel, and they lived with us for very short periods of time. So I feel that many of the perspectives and nuances of like just kind of day-to-day living for years and years and years that I had growing up in a community, uh, in a community like Echo Park in our household were preoccupations uh, or I guess, you know, focused from a, a woman's perspective. You know, how am I going to take care of my child? Like, what, what, how are we going to go to the grocery store on Friday? Like, what are we going to do when we get there? Do I have the coupon book? And is it double coupon day in order to ensure that we all have enough, you know, money to eat, to, to get what, whatever it is that we need? So um, not to say that those are uniquely like female preoccupations, but I feel that in the household that I grew up in, they absolutely were. You know, there was no like, you know, male figure to say, let's go learn how to like, you know, um, fish or catch a ball. You know, these were, I guess, lessons of survival. The process of being raised by women, I think their preoccupation almost exclusively was with survival. How are we going to survive? How are we going to take care of ourselves? How are we going to take care of each other? How are we going to take care of this this growing child who's here in this house? So I felt that it was very natural for me to adapt those voices of survival and, you know, just kind of wanting to get through the day. You know, I feel like my mom and my, more so my grandma than my mom, you know, many of their preoccupations were like, I don't need anything fancy. I, I don't need a million dollars. I don't need to win the lottery. Like, I just need to know how I'm going to get through this month and how we're going to take care of each other. Those preoccupations are very much Iris's preoccupations. So it felt very natural then to write from a woman's perspective and a mother's perspective. You know, I've seen this novel described as a satire, and there were moments when I laughed out loud. You know, like, oh, good. The quote, good. you know, how many bad decisions in the world were made by people drinking terrible coffee? Question. Oh, well. and, <laughs> and I also laughed when this quote, Serena and I disagreed on most things, but even I knew nothing brought out a white person's insecurity more than this simple conversation in a language they chose not to learn in high school. That mm-hmm. was, <laughs> you know, so there were, there were these moments that made me smile, but for the most part, I felt very, it was unsettling and ominous as I read Mm. this book. Mm. What is your hope that readers take away from this book? I think that, you know, and again, like it's, it's been really gratifying just going out and getting all these kinds of responses. Cause when you work at something six and a half years, it's a really long time. You know, there's a lot that's thrown in here. And I realize a reader might just be like, what, where is this book going next? Which I always like, right? Because again, it's satirical, it's comical, it's black comic, it's 
it's like a thriller towards the like the final um, part of the book. I guess my feeling is with with most satires and most thrillers is that this is a warning. This is a character who has come from maybe just a few years down the road, who's kind of stepping back here into 2023 in the summer and is trying to warn you. And I think her voice is very much saying that, you know, this is the journey that could be waiting for you if you don't step up and pay attention. So her journey could very well be your journey. And, you know, who wouldn't want to kind of like peel the veil back a little bit and like look a little bit in the future down the road and say, huh, if this is a timeline that feels incredibly unsettling and very uncomfortable to me, what am I prepared to do about it? Well, the book is My Name is Iris Brando Skyhorse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Beth. Really appreciate it. That was Brando Skyhorse, author of the book My Name is Iris, which was published by Avid Reader Press. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.